Okay, let's get started. Uh, we're in Hebrews this morning. We've, we've done everything up through chapter 4, verse 13. I want to back up to verse 11 this morning when we get started in a minute and just look at 11 through 13 again and make sure we've, uh, we've said what needs to be said there. And then we'll move into verse 14 uh, this morning, which is a, a transition to a, a new focus for the author of Hebrews. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather and consider this morning the work of the author of Hebrews. We pray that we would understand it rightly, that your spirit would be at work so that we would not only uh, finish here in a few minutes and uh, intellectually know more than we did before, but that uh, the spirit would be at work uh, through the means of our mind, uh, affecting our hearts, that we would know you, Father, Son, and Spirit better, uh, that we would love you better, that we would know your love for us better, and that our faith and hope and love would be strengthened and renewed until the day that Christ returns. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so it's, it's kind of a, you know, going back into chapter 3, um, you, you get this warning section that starts in verse 7. Uh, and, and the instruction itself there is acute in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And so he's going to, to continue to unpack that, talking about the day of rest, the fact that a day of rest, uh, a, a true Sabbath still exists, that though in some sense we have entered into it, there is also a sense in which we will enter into it. And he's calling the reader to strive to make sure that we do enter into that future rest. And you see both the, uh, the, the present and the future in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also entered, or has also rested from his works as God did from his. And yet you also have him saying, Let us, verse 11, therefore strive to enter that rest. So there's both a present and a future aspect to this rest. So the warning uh, more or less comes to an end here. It's not the, the beginning and ending of this warning section is, is not quite as, uh, as stark as some of the others that we have seen and will see in the book. But I want to go back to verse 11 through 13 uh, at the end of that section. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so uh, a couple of things remain unsaid for us in Sunday school about these verses, and Pastor Nathan quoted verse 13 this morning in his sermon. Uh, I want to focus especially on verse 12 and how that fits into this section, verses 11 through 13. The Word of God. Notice it's the Word of God that's the subject. Uh, and what does he say about this Word, that it's living, it's active, uh, it's sharp to, to divide and to pierce, uh, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is consistent with the, the message this morning that there's no hiding from God. God's Word is a measure, it's a standard. Uh, one of the words we use to describe the Bible is the canon. 
the canon of Scripture. And when we talk about the canon, we're talking about the 66 books, individual books that have been included in this canon, this, uh, this Bible that we have. But canon is a word that comes from uh, ruler, and not in the sense to reign, but in the sense of measurement. A canon is a, a standard, it's a rule against which things are measured. Uh, and that's the sense in which we use it when we talk about Scripture. Scripture is the measure of what is, is true and what is false, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, and what is evil. Uh, and the Scripture is not a, a dead measure, right? The, the, the ruler that we might use to measure something is, is impassive or is, is passive, right? It's, uh, it's not active. It's just there, and we come to it and measure ourselves against it. But the Bible is no passive measure, but an active measure. It speaks out what is true, and in that speaking, we are measured up against it, and there is no hiding from that measure, no hiding from that standard. Notice, too, in verse 13, for the Word of God, in verse 12, is living, etc., in 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Did you notice the move that the author of Hebrews did there? Read it to yourself verses 12 and 13 again. Do you notice anything assumed in the grammar? It is present, yeah, present tense. What's the subject of verse 12? What's that? Yeah, yeah. There's no distinction between the Word of God and God Himself, is there? The Word of God is living and active, etc., and no creature is hidden from His sight. There's no transition from God's Word to God, and now we're talking about God, and with respect to God, no one is hidden from His sight. No, the truth that Scripture pierces and is an active measure, an active standard, he goes without transition to speaking of God. No creature is hidden from his sight. And he says the same thing of both, doesn't he? Uh, the, the effect, uh, the, the truth that's being communicated about God's Word is true about God. Why? Because God and His Word are not to be separated. God's, uh, God's Word, it's, it's uh, popular in liberal theology over the last 150 years to suggest that the Bible is a record of what some people believed about God, and that sometimes they got it right and sometimes they got it wrong. So the Bible itself is just a book. It's just a record. It, it does not of itself have any particular value, authority, etc. It's separate from God. It's not God's very word. And so our job, the, the liberals would say, our job then is to discern in the word what is from God, what is true, and what's not. So, I mean, there's some really obvious passages, right? So everything Paul says is wrong. Uh, the liberals just throw Paul out. Uh, in fact, Paul didn't write most of those books in the New Testament that have his name on them. 
right? They, they are free to begin picking and choosing. What standard will we pick and choose by? Right? We're given no standard, so the standard becomes ourselves. Or, you know, if, if you recognize how problematic that is, you say, well, scholarship is the standard, right? Uh, I'm going to say what I think, but then it's going to be subject to peer review. And, uh, and so the scholarly community is going to keep all of us honest. Uh, the scripture itself claims to make no distinction between God and the word of God. Right? The word of God has all the power and authority of God because it is his very word. And we see that here assumed, uh, implicitly asserted by the author of Hebrews. One of the, the, the things we ought to take from this, then, is that we ought to be uh, students of God's word, right? And, and coming to the scripture, not only as students in the sense that there's content, and we want to get that content in our head, but coming to God's word as students in the sense that we are malformed and need reformation, right? We need to be reformed. And it's God's word that reforms us. We come to it, and when we read in God's word what is right and good and true, we recognize where we are different, where we have, have acted contrary, thought, spoken, and acted contrary to that truth, to that goodness. And our response should be to repent and to pursue what is right and good and true. To permit, if I can say it this way, the Spirit of God to be at work in us, transforming us according to the standard. The Bible, in a sense, is the mold into which we want to be poured. That we would be in perfect consistency with it. That's a process that we're engaged in as Christians. A process that Scripture speaks of as sanctification, being made holy. It's a process that will continue until we die or Christ returns. And we'll be finished on the day that Christ returns and we are resurrected and made perfect, body and soul forever. Perfect by what standard? By the standard of God's Word. So what is God telling us in His Word? He's saying, this is who I am. And His character is the standard of perfect righteousness. Right? So this is what God has called us to and what God has equipped us for. By giving us the Holy Spirit, He is empowering us and at work in us and grants to us this, the, the means by which we are engaged in becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is ultimately calling us to. Therefore, uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, well, what disobedience and how do we recognize it? And what do we do in order to avoid falling according to that same sort of disobedience? Well, we go to God's word. Right, do you deny that you are disobedient? The word of God will correct you. The word of God will make plain to you that you are disobedient, that we do fail, that we are not only tempted, but we give in to temptation. 
How then do we strive to enter that rest? We go to God's Word, and we go to God in prayer. And in going to God's Word, we are shaped by the Spirit of God working through that Word. So, let me pause there. Any questions before we go on? Billy? I think that's fair. Yeah, we, we strive to enter the world or into the, enter that rest by repenting, uh, by going to God's word. It's, you know, the, the Christian life is in one sense very simple and in another sense very difficult. It's very simple to, to understand what it should look like and then very difficult sometimes to do it. Uh, and so we're, we're constantly having to call one another back to it. Uh, and to be called by the Word of God back to these things. We're, we're not, uh, we, Nathan and I and the ruling elders, we're not constantly talking to you about the ordinary means of grace because we don't think you understand it. We're confident you understand it. It's that we, we know it's true for us and it's true for you that we constantly need to be reminded of it. We constantly need to be reminded that the Christian life is a restored relationship with God and one that is also continually being restored. And the question then is, is how? Has God told us how He's in relationship with us and how He's restoring that broken relationship that we've been hearing about the last couple of weeks in Genesis? He has. He says that He has saved us. He's, brought us, he, he's removed the offense that separates us so that now we can be together again. And what does it look like to be together? He speaks to us. By his word and spirit, we speak to him in prayer. We live in obedience to him. One of my favorite, the Puritans can be very difficult to read and frustrating even sometimes. But one of my absolute favorite works by the Puritans is a, a work by John Owen called Communion with God. And the simple premise of communion with God, and what he means by communion is relationship fellowship. And he, he opens by asking the question, what is fellowship with God? And he says, it is that God loves us and expresses that love by saving us, speaking to us by his word and spirit, and we love him by obeying his word. We love him by pursuing righteousness, which includes repentance right? Repentance is an act of obedience, right? It's not that we have to be perfectly obedient or we don't love God. It's that we are pursuing that obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit and repenting, God granting us repentance where we fail in it. That's what the relationship looks like right now. And that's a process that will continue and will be true of all of us until we're made perfect in glory. It's interesting, too. I think part of us, and, and to some degree, I hope this is true of you, that you read, let us therefore strive, and you kind of recoil as a good Presbyterian, right? You're kind of like, strive? Strive? That sounds like work. We're not supposed to work. No work in the Christian life, right? But, but what's the, what are we striving for? Rest. So by necessity, whatever we're doing now must be striving. It must be working, right? 
Because there is a rest that is future to us, and if it is future to us, we've not yet entered into it. Therefore, we must still be working. God is working for six days, and then he rests. And we work as we anticipate that final rest that's promised to us. Uh, The Christian life is a, a life of striving, not striving in order to earn salvation. That's where good Presbyterian theology helps us avoid error here. We're not striving in order to earn our salvation, but we're busy at work with the work that God has given us. And that's your vocation in the world. It's your vocation as a Christian, the mission we're sent on in the world. And it's the, the, the vocation, if you will, of living in the world as a Christian. In fellowship with God, actively, repenting where we fail. The key here, though, is that obedience. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail or fall by the same sort of disobedience, right? Okay, so with that, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to transition into uh, unpacking Christ as the great high priest. Now, we want to go back here because he's already... Uh, given us a a little peek through the curtains to let us know this is where he was headed. Look at the end of chapter 2. It says, uh, for surely, verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's all he says about it right there. He moves into that transition, uh, the greater than Moses, and then the warning passage that we've just finished up. And so with those verses I just read in mind, look at chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a a ton to unpack here, and we will definitely not finish this morning. We'll come back to these verses next week, I'm confident. But let's begin with the context the redemptive historical context of a great high priest. Uh, this is not a new idea to the readers, is it? Where does the idea of a high priest come from? From, from the law, right? From uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy is where we, we read about all of that, the first high priest being Aaron. So the high priest in the law of Moses is a very important position. Uh, I don't just mean in terms of, of prominence and, and whatnot, but it's a, there's a necessity to that office. What does the high priest do in the Mosaic law? Um, what's that? Yeah, he offers sacrifice, which is part of intercession, right? He, 
he represents the people toward God. Right? That's, that's the primary role that he plays. Uh, we've got to understand that Old Testament office of high priest in order to appreciate really much of the rest of the book of Hebrews. Because he's going to focus on Christ's priesthood, but then he's going to move into discussions about the covenant uh, and the promises and, uh, and the sacrifice, the atonement that's made. So even as, as he, he turns away from being focused expressly on the high priesthood, it's still a high priest all the way through. It's the high priest who offers atonement, right? It's the high priest who ministers a covenant. Uh, and so it's, the high priest here is going to underlie so much of the rest of the author's argument throughout the book of Hebrews. So we want to make sure we understand this high priest. There is, and we've talked about this uh, so far in the book, there's this, this uh, an assumption on the part of the author that you're very familiar with the Mosaic law and the, the ritual at, that, that surrounds the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, he assumes you understand that. And so, assuming that, if we, if we are familiar with it, we'll begin to see all kinds of language that is, is nodding towards that, that structure and those images. What do you see in these verses, 14 through 16, that's this sort of implicit nod to those things? I, I think that he does it at least twice here. Uh, in these verses. Yeah, that's the first one. Exactly. So he passed through the heavens. What does that mean? What does it mean Jesus passed through the heavens? Is the author just making some reference to the ascension, right? He left earth and, and disappeared into the clouds, passed through the heavens. That's not what the author's focused on at all. And in order to recognize that, we need to know something about the high priest. What did the high priest do in the law of Moses that only the high priest could do? I couldn't quite hear you. The Holy of Holies, right? So you, you remember that the tabernacle, according to God's instruction, is uh, it's got a series of, of courtyards. There's different parts to the tabernacle. You're standing completely outside of it. And then you move into a, a courtyard area, which is outdoors in front of the tabernacle itself, the central uh, tent of the tabernacle. And in that outdoor space is where you're met by the priests who receive your offering, uh, who slaughter the, uh, the sacrifice and place the sacrifice on the altar where it's burned. Uh, there's the laver there, where, uh, the, or what's sometimes called the sea. Uh, big bronze basin full of water. All of that is there. But then as you move from there, you move into the holy place, which is the, it's inside the tent. Remember, the tent has two rooms in it, and you have to go through the first room to get to the second. That first room is called the holy place. Uh, in Hebrew, it's just literally the holy. And then there's a veil. There's a, a, a curtain that goes all the way across that tent, uh, and there's no split in the curtain. Uh, you, you, can't, uh, you can't draw that curtain back. It's a, it's a single piece all the way across, actually in several layers, right? And the, the cherubim are embroidered onto it. Uh, and it, no one is allowed to go into that room 
except the high priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and then only after he's made atonement for himself and is bringing atonement for the people. He has to go in there with blood. And we've talked about this before, and maybe you know, some of you who might be more recent members here at the church may not have been here when we've talked about this in the past. Uh, he's the high priest, uh, we know, had bells sewn into the hem of his high priestly garment. Uh, tradition tells us that he had a rope tied to his ankle, that the priests, the other priests, the, the Levites would listen, and uh, if the bells stopped tinkling, they knew that God had, uh, had struck down the high priest in the Holy of Holies. But nobody's going in to get him, right? You're not allowed in there. And so you, you use the rope to pull the high priest out of the Holy of Holies. It's a big, big deal. And in redemptive history, this, this space, the Holy of Holies, it represents the Garden of Eden. This is why nobody's allowed in but the high priest, and then only under a very specific circumstance once a year, because we were cast out of the garden and are not admitted back into it. And we know we're not admitted back into it because the cherubim is placed there in Genesis 3. We read this morning the cherubim with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve from going back in. This is why cherubim are embroidered on the veil. We're, we're supposed to understand that that holy of holies is the garden, or better stated, that holy of holy, holies is the place where God dwells with man in perfect peace and fellowship and unity, but we are excluded from it in the law of Moses. We are not allowed to go in there. Only the high priest can go in there. Remember, the author of Hebrews is, is teaching us that that law of Moses has passed away. But there was a deeper truth being conveyed, being communicated, being taught in that law of Moses about the tabernacle and about God and our sin and our relationship with God. And that deeper truth was true before the law of Moses was given, and it's true now that the law of Moses is gone, that Aaron, as a high priest, was actually a foreshadowing of the true high priest, a type of the true high priest, which is Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews will say, the blood of bulls and goats never atoned for sin. But the true high priest takes the blood that does atone for sin, his blood, and he goes through the veil into the Holy of Holies and applies that blood on our behalf and our sins are forgiven and atonement is accomplished perfectly and forever. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says, since then we have a great high priest. That's not a term used in the Old Testament for Aaron or his offspring. They are the high priest. There's only one at a time. But they're not the great high priest. Christ is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's passed through this veil. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw nigh to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16, same question. Do you see the inference? What's the, the mosaic image that underlies the, the language of verse 16? 
What was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark, which also is called the Mercy Seat. What else is it called? Do you remember? God's footstool. Right? When you come into the Holy of Holies, you come into the throne room of God. And because of the truth in verse 14 that he has passed through the heavens, the author of Hebrews then draws us to this conclusion. He gives us this instruction. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Well, in the Old Testament, you don't dare draw near to the throne. You'll be struck dead. Only the high priest draws near to the throne, and then only once a year. But we have a high priest who has not only gone in on our behalf, but by doing so has opened the way for us to come in as well. So what happens at the crucifixion pointing to this? The veil is torn. From top to bottom, we're specifically told. Why? Because it's God who tears it. And it's a big deal that it's torn because, again, remember, there is no natural division. It, it wasn't two curtains that were drawn together to the middle. It is a single curtain all the way across, indicating, again, our lack of access. But God himself has torn that curtain. The symbol of our separation from God has been torn, symbolizing our fellowship with God, our access now. Because we have that access, the author of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What do we receive there? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Okay, before we go on, questions or observations? Again, notice, not only is Aaron in the Old Testament, the high priest, is not only is he human, that, that much is a given, right? But he is a member of the people of Israel. Uh, Christ had to be made like us. We've already seen that. Um, I think we've, we've covered that, right? In, at the end of chapter 2, he talks about this. It says, uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Uh, we also see this, uh, this relationship here. The fact that he is our great high priest points to the fact that he is one of us. Right? He, this is why our salvation had to be accomplished by a human being. The, the one who stands in for us must be one of us. A, a lot more could be said about the necessity of Christ's humanity, but that's one of the things that we see right here in these verses. Look at the comfort that the author of Hebrews is trying to hold out to us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There's the first thing. Right? We, we confess a truth that we believe. We confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. 
We confess the triune God who in redemptive history has delivered his people from slavery to sin and holds out to us the unerring promise of eternal life together with him, restored fellowship with our creator. That's what we confess. If we doubt, if we struggle to believe what it is that we confess, we can hold fast to that confession because Jesus Christ has finished the work. He's done everything that's necessary. What we're waiting on is not for God to finish the work that's required for our salvation. What we're waiting on is the application of that work perfectly. Right? The, the, the work is done. In a way, it's kind of like, uh, and I'm making this up on the fly, I hope it doesn't completely break down, uh, but if someone promised to feed you a, a fantastic meal, and they've already purchased all the ingredients, everything is ready at home, and they have prepared that meal. You just have not yet been seated to, to eat that meal. There's no question of their purchasing the ingredients. It's finished. There's no question of them preparing the ingredients and setting them before you. It's been done. You just haven't been seated yet. The author of Hebrews is saying to us here, hold fast your confession. What God said he would do, he has done. It is finished. The cry comes from the cross. So we're told first, we're encouraged to hold fast our confession. Then the encouragement that we get in verse 15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It would be easy to imagine that at best, God knows our weakness. He knows how we suffer because he's God. He knows everything, right? Now, that knowledge is perfect, and we can get into all of the, the existential realities there with respect to God and His knowledge. But God, for our sake, has done better than that even. He Himself, Jesus Christ, has suffered as we suffer and therefore knows our suffering. He knows our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize. He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And then we have this confidence now. He doesn't just say, come near to the throne of grace. He says to do so with confidence, acknowledging that apart from Christ, to do so would be death. That's why there's no confidence. But he says to us now, we're not only permitted to draw near because of what Christ has done, but we ought to draw near with confidence. When you know yourself to be a sinner, and I don't mean generally and as a good systematic theologian, I mean you are in the very midst of dealing with the guilt of a sin you've just committed. And you know the only thing you can do is to take that to God, to repent, to express your grief and hatred of it, and that little voice says, you are the last person right now that God wants to talk to. This is not the moment to go to God. You're a mess. Give it a day or two. Let's get some good works in. Let's feel good about ourselves. We'll go to God then, right? And it'll be much easier, much better to say to God from a position of confidence that I'm sorry I did this thing I know I wasn't supposed to do. But when we do that, our confidence is in what? It's in our good works. And the author of Hebrews doesn't say, hey, look, 
Take a time out. Get your stuff together. What's the matter with you? Come on, let's clean some of this up. And then, with confidence, go in to the throne of grace. Now, there's there's no, no separation here. He says, period, because of who Christ is and what he's done and who you are to him, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. When we know ourselves to be guilty of sin, we ought to rush into the throne of grace, knowing that what awaits us there is not condemnation and judgment and death, but acceptance and forgiveness and life. This is what God holds out to us because of what Christ has done. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What do we find there but mercy and grace to help in time of need? Okay, I'm going to pause again. We've got about 10 minutes left. Observations, questions? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yet without sin. And that's where we're going to finish up this morning in just a minute. Uh, that Jesus is without sin. That's a distinction. There's a lot of ways that, we, that the author of Hebrews is going to compare Christ to the, great, or to the high priest of the Mosaic system. Uh, but there's contrast as well. And that's one of the contrasts he not only makes here, but he's going to draw out in uh, the opening verses of chapter 5. Other questions, observations? Okay, let's talk for a minute about uh, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Uh, this is an important passage uh, with respect to uh, several things. Uh, first of all, again, Christ's ability to sympathize, uh, not only because he's God and therefore he knows all things perfectly, but because he has... Uh, has become man, he's taken on humanity, is fully man, even as he is fully God, and as man has experienced temptation, right? So he's able to sympathize with us, and that's important. The, the other important aspect of this is in helping us uh, understand temptation, right? There's, there are some incorrect assumptions that we might make if we read this, this line carelessly, Right. One of those is something I have heard uh, ministers even say, that, uh, that Christ suffered every kind of temptation. That is, anything we could possibly be tempted with in the world, Christ was tempted with that. That would be a, a mistake. That would be an error in the reading. When it says uh, that he has been uh, tempted in every respect as we are, it does not mean that every possible temptation was experienced by Christ. Um, I've unfortunately heard that assertion in the context of a lot of the, uh, the same-sex attraction discussion, uh, that Christ is able to sympathize with those who are same-sex attracted because he himself was tempted, as, uh, tempted by same-sex attraction. Uh, this is the verse they go to to try and defend that assertion. Tempted in every respect, even as we are. There it is. It's not what it means. 
That does not mean that every single possible temptation was experienced by Christ. Uh, How do we know that? Well, let's start with the fact that Christ's humanity was real. And it would take more than a lifetime to experience every possible temptation that, that a person can experience. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's like literally not possible. Yeah. It would, it would be a full-time job and it require a contract. Yeah, that's right. There are temptations we experience today that the, the very nature of the temptation didn't exist in that time period or may not have been common there, right? And so when we talk about same-sex attraction and the activity that comes with that, that's always existed in the world. Uh, But the idea that Christ ran into it in Israel is highly, highly improbable, Uh, just historically speaking. uh, It's not necessary for him to have literally experienced every kind of temptation in order for him to sympathize with our temptation, right? So it doesn't mean that. Uh, It's also important to recognize that there is a, uh, a very uh, uh, important distinction between uh, Christ, who was without sin and without a sin nature, and we, all of us, every human being that's ever been born other than Christ, who were born with a sin nature. Uh, Christ does not have a sin nature, and you say, well, I thought he was fully human. Oh, he is. He's actually, in fact, more human than we are, right? Uh, A sin nature is not an inherent aspect of human nature. It's a cancer that grows on human nature, and Christ did not have that cancer, right? There is no sinful desire in Christ. Our sinful desires are an aspect of that cancer. They're a symptom of that cancer, That cancer grows on us, and therefore we desire sinful things. This is why desires can and are, can be and are sinful. And this is where we start to get to the heart of the matter, is that it it, it comes up also, not just in the context of same-sex attraction, but also in that context, and that's where it's come up more recently in discussion in the church and in the culture, that... It's not sin to be same-sex attracted. It's only sin if you act on it. That's false. It's patently false. In fact, here over the next couple of minutes, I'm going to show you how false it is, and you're kind of going to, well, of course, right? It's obvious. The desire itself is sinful. Acting on the desire, also sinful. That's another sin. It's a different sin, right? But the desire itself is sinful. That desire rises up out of a sin nature, out of a heart that is twisted. All of our sins do, not just this one. The the desire to lie to protect ourselves or to make more of ourselves than is true. Uh, The desire to take something that's not ours. Uh, The desire to, to treat someone hatefully. Those desires are all themselves sin, right? Those are sin in themselves. 
Why? Because they rise up. Their source is the sin nature. Christ says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what he's talking about. Is it a sin to have said the thing that you said? Yes. It was a sin to have even conceived the words that eventually came out of your mouth. Why? Because they rise up out of a sin nature. Liz? Yeah. Yeah, and we are. We're going to come to that. Yeah. Maybe not satisfactorily before we're done with our time today, but we'll get there. And like I said, I, I think we're going to need to pick this up next week with these verses. So Christ doesn't have a sin nature. That means that temptation works differently for Christ than it does for us. It doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. I'm not saying Christ wasn't tempted. He was actually, absolutely tempted. It was a real temptation. But temptation has two parts. Both of them by themselves are temptation. But for us, they are usually working together. Uh, and that is uh, the distinction between the internal and the external. Right? Yeah, it, it's the same as, yeah, it can be translated tested, or it can be translated tempted. Uh, in, the, in this context, temptation probably is the right translation. Uh, temptation is a test, but not every test is a temptation. Uh, sh sure, it's, it, there's not an answer for you in the word itself, I don't think. Uh, the word uh, has the ability to communicate that in the context it's placed in. So it, it, it derives that meaning from its context. Uh, or it might, it might be also true to say uh, that the word can include that, right? Yeah, I don't think it is, right? So we, we will say kind of lightheartedly, don't tempt me. And we're talking about an external temptation, right? Would you like, would you like a, a whole cheesecake for yourself? Don't tempt me, right? Um, and it is that. Now, right, what, what's happening there? There's an external provocation. I might not have been thinking about cheesecake at all. No, no part of me was imagining cheesecake there was no temptation for me to eat an entire cheesecake by myself. Yes, I've done it. Um, when the external provocation came along, which we would call a temptation, when somebody sat a cheesecake in front of me and, and said, would you like a cheesecake? That's external, right? But it appeals to something in me that was already there, right? And those two things together form the fullness of, of what's happening in that temptation. 
Now, obviously, cheesecake is a silly thing, although we could probably put that under gluttony, especially if it was the entire cheesecake. Um, but like if I'd been fasting for a couple of days, right, not gluttony. Um, so for us, that's, that's how temptation usually works. Something external and something internal are coming together. A desire I have that is sinful is met with a, an opportunity in the, the circumstances around me. And, and they are drawn together. That's the temptation for me. Christ is tempted externally. But temptation internally is entirely rooted in the sin nature. And Christ, not having a sin nature, does not have that component of temptation. That doesn't mean he's not tempted. You don't have to have both components in order to be tempted. You can have just one, you can have just the other, or they may both be working together, right? And so Christ experiences external temptation. It's important because, again, if temptation, if that internal desire to do what is not right, what is sin, if that internal desire rises up out of a sin nature and Christ has that internal desire, he by necessity has a sin nature, i.e. he is a sinner. And if he is a sinner, he cannot pay for our sin. He cannot be our high priest. So it's important that we handle this passage carefully. In every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not only without sin in the outcome, but without sin in the temptation itself. And we're going to have to pick that up next week uh, and finish some of those thoughts and questions. And, uh, and having done that next week, at some point, I think in the middle of next week's lesson, we'll transition into chapter 5 and, uh, and see what the author of Hebrews has to say about Christ uh, as our high priest. So let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ is our high priest, our great high priest, uh, who has not only symbolically done what is necessary for salvation, but has really done it, that he has taken his blood and as our great high priest gone into the Holy of Holies and placed that blood upon the altar making atonement for us perfectly and eternally. Father, we thank you that because he has done this, we can hold fast our confession and enter with confidence into your throne room and there receive grace and mercy. Father, we thank you that you have done this in Jesus Christ and that you have made us your people and taught us to call you Father. We give thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.